This charge was doubtful, while the man's practical piety was indubitable. Indeed, the charge was mostly an ignorant misunderstanding of the love of solitude and secret prayer and was founded on his being often found kneeling, not before the altar, but in peculiar places, in the crypts or gallery, or even in the belfry. He was, at the moment, about to enter the church through the yard of the smithy, but stopped and frowned a little, as he saw his brother's cavernous eyes staring in the same direction. On the hypothesis that the colonel was interested in the church, he did not waste any speculations. There only remained the blacksmith shop, and though the blacksmith was a Puritan in none of his people, Wilfred Bohin had heard some scandals about a beautiful and rather celebrated wife. He flung a suspicious look across the shed, and the colonel stood up, laughing to speak to him. Good morning, Wilfred, he said. Like a good landlord, I am watching sleeplessly over my people. I am going to call on the blacksmith. Wilfred looked at the ground and said, The blacksmith is out. He is over at Greenford. I know, answered the other with silent laughter, and that is why I am calling on him. Norman, said the cleric, with his eye on a pebble in the road, are you ever afraid of thunderbolts? What do you mean? asked the colonel. Is your hobby meteorology? I mean, said Wilfred, without looking up, do you ever think that God might strike you in the street? I beg your pardon, said the colonel. I see your hobby is folklore. I know your hobby is blasphemy, retorted the religious man, stung in the one life place of his nature. But if you do not fear God, you have good reason to fear man. The elder raised his eyes politely. Fear man, he said. Barnes the blacksmith is the biggest and strongest man for forty miles around, said the clergyman sternly. I know you are no coward or weakling, but he could throw you over the wall. This struck home, being true, and the lowering line by mouth and nostril darkened and deepened. For a moment, he stood with a heavy sneer on his face. But in an instant, Colonel Bohan had recovered his own cruel good humour and laughed, showing two dog-like front teeth under his yellow moustache. In that case, my dear Wilfred, he said quite carelessly, it was wise for the last of the Bohans to come out partially in armour. And he took off the pure round hat covered with green, showing that it was lined within with steel. Wilfred recognized it indeed as a light Japanese or Chinese helmet torn down from a trophy that hung in the old family hall. It was the first to hand, explained his brother airily, always the nearest hat and the nearest woman. The blacksmith is away at Greenford, said Wilfred quietly. The time of his return is unsettled. And with that, he turned and went into the church with bowed head, crossing himself like one who wishes to be quit of an unclean spirit. He was anxious to forget such grossness in the cool twilight of his tall Gothic cloisters, but on that morning it was fated that a still round of religious exercises should be everywhere arrested by small shocks. As he entered the church, hitherto always empty at the tower, a kneeling figure rose hazily to its feet and came towards the full daylight of the doorway. When the curate saw it, he stood still with surprise, for the early worshipper was none other than the village idiot, a nephew of the blacksmith, one who neither would nor could care for the church or for anything else. He was always called Mad Joe and seemed to have no other name. He was a dark, strong, slouching lad, 
with a heavy white face, dark straight hair and a mouth always open. As he passed the priest, his moon-cast countenance gave no hint of what he had been doing or thinking of. He had never been known to pray before. What sort of prayers was he saying now? Extraordinary prayers, surely. Wilfred Bohan stood rooted to the spot long enough to see the idiot go out into the sunshine and even to see his dissolute brother hail him with a sort of avuncular jocularity. The last thing he saw was a colonel throwing pennies at the open mouth of Joe with a serious appearance of trying to hit it. This ugly sunlight picture of the stupidity and cruelty of the earth sent the ascetic finally to his prayers for purification and new thoughts. He went up to a pew in the gallery, which brought him under a coloured window which he loved and which always quieted his spirit, a blue window with an angel carrying lilies. There he began to think less about the half-wit with his livid face and mouth like a fish. He began to think less of his evil brother, pacing like a lean lion in his horrible hunger. He sank deeper and deeper into those cold and sweet colours of silver blossoms and sapphire sky.